I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Banks, at least for now, lay at the heart of finance. As institutions designed to facilitate borrowing and lending, they anchor everyday transactions for consumers and hordes of intermediaries. But the form in which banking services are being provided is changing rapidly. New upstart fintech firms and intermediaries, equipped with cutting-edge technologies, are vying to provide an array of financial services. But they increasingly want to do this on more equal footing with banks, especially when it comes to customer data. Now, this has led to a new movement, the open banking movement, a collaborative model for financial services in which banking data is shared between two or more unaffiliated parties, all in an attempt to enhance capabilities to the marketplace. Now, at the heart of this development is Plaid. It's a company working through a new kind of infrastructure for financial services. And its software acts as a kind of plumbing, connecting banks to apps of users such that banks can quickly confirm the identity of account holders. Now, developers love Plaid's fast tech which, according to Forbes, can be found deployed with startups like Acorns, Betterment, Coinbase, and Clarity Money. And today, just seven years after its founding, the company has reportedly over a $2 billion valuation. So I'm delighted to have here with me today, John Pitts, the head of policy for Plaid, here to discuss with me the open banking revolution and the changes arising in the sector. John, thanks so much for making it onto the show. Chris, thanks for having me. Really excited to talk today. So in very simple terms, how would you describe open banking? Like, what is it precisely? So I'm going to describe it in two simple terms, if you'll uh, give me the indulgence of giving you two answers to a very basic question. Sure. Um, The first one is, at its core, open banking is the proposition that consumers have the right to their own financial data, the financial information that that consumer generates as they live their financial life, and the right to share it with the companies of their choosing in order to get products or services that are more tailored to them uh, or give them different options than they might have from the financial service provider that is the holder of that data for the consumer. I think that's the broadest and, to me, the most important definition of what open banking is. The second definition is sort of a more legalistic definition, and that's one that comes uh, mainly from Europe and, in particular, uh, the UK, which is a very specific set of rules for how the consumer shares that financial information. Um, They really are two different enough concepts that I think they're worth talking about separately. And I'm happy to sort of unpack the details of um, what open banking means at sort of the basic consumer level versus what it means at the regulatory policy level um, if, if you want to go down that road. So how did Plaid get into this space? I mean, how did it recognize this particular uh, set of issues when it comes to customer data? I mean, it seems like a very odd place for a company to find itself in. 
Yeah, so uh, I can tell the story imperfectly, but our two co-founders, uh, Zach and William, started actually building a personal financial management tool. That was their plan, was to build an app. They realized very early on that the biggest problem they had was they couldn't get good data into the app. And so as a side project, they built a tool to get better data to power their app. They then realized very quickly the side tool was actually much better than the app itself. And that should be what they spend their time on and build their company around because every company needed high quality data. Not everyone in the world needed their personal financial management tool as opposed to the other hundred ones that were out there competing for it. One of the interesting things about customer data and sharing customer data and the way in which that data can be shared and the way in which the sharing of data is even permissioned, you know, there are lots of different sort of contested models, right? And, and so from looking from the outside in and thinking about what open banking means, it seems that there are sort of different uh, options and, and different kinds of conceptions. So, so maybe you could just walk us through, you know, how customer uh, data is shared and, you know, what is the evolving infrastructure looking like? And then how are practitioners viewing what is understood to be open banking? Sure. So uh, I think the best starting place is the U.S. market, where um, while we don't have a really robust sort of capital O, capital B, open banking regulatory policy, we do have more lowercase o, lowercase b open banking happening than anywhere else in the world. Um, and, And not by a close margin. It really is orders of magnitude. Consumers really are voting with their thumbs to take their data from Uh, one place and move it to another. So how does that actually happen? Right now, um, the vast majority of that sort of data portability happens um, with consumers signing up for an app that they'd like to use. Um, In the course of signing up for that app, they will be prompted to share uh, their uh, logon credentials to their bank account in order to access the data log onto the bank account, access the data, and share it with the third party. So so here you're, you're thinking about like a, a prepaid card that you're loading onto your cell phone then? As an example, or for example, like if you um, want to use Dave or Blend or Robinhood or Venmo, um, all of those are ways in which the consumer, let's take Venmo for example. What the consumer needs to fundamentally do in order to use Venmo is... Uh, access their account and routing number and confirm that that's their account that they have control over so that they can move funds from their traditional FI into Venmo and then start using Venmo. Um, In order to do that, you can sort of type in your account and routing number and assuming you don't fat finger anything and get everything right, you can wait for a micro deposit into your account three days later, um, confirm, oh, you know, Venmo just sent me three cents. That proves that I have control over this account. And then you can start using Venmo. Um, understandably, a lot of consumers don't want to wait three days to start using the financial app they've chosen. And so the faster method uh, is to use their logon credentials to actually log into the bank account, grab the account and routing number, and then share it with Venmo directly, which takes that three-day process and turns it into uh, a three-second process. How then does does open banking change or modify that process? 
So there's a couple of ways in which you can modify it, and you don't actually need open banking to uh, to do this. You're actually starting to see it in the U.S. market right now. Um, the advantage of that process is it's fast, um, it allows the consumer to access their data, and it allows them to share their data with a third party very quickly. The disadvantage to it is it is based on the consumer's uh, bank account credentials, and also it's dependent on maintaining a connection to a bank that's constantly changing. Every time the bank updates its website, um, someone like Plaid may need to update our system so that the two systems can talk to each other. A better evolution from that, and one that we're really starting to see in the market and push ourselves, is to uh, make that connection on the basis of an API, an application programming interface, instead of sort of a traditional uh, web interface, which is what most of the system is built on now. The advantages of an API are, one, you can do it without the consumer uh, sharing their credentials. So you get the credentials out of the ecosystem and you improve safety. Um, and it's a permanent connection that doesn't change. So if the bank changes something in their system, that automatically is updated in the API and automatically updated for Plaid. And so you don't have those sort of uh, breakdowns uh, when one party makes a change on their side. Chris, I think that, you know, to really ground this for you, if you and I were out swimming um, and I said, Marco, you'd say. Polo. Right. Automatically. If you and I are walking uh, down the street and I say car, you don't really have an automatic response to that. And that's the difference between sort of this credential based one where you don't have that automatic language back and forth between the bank and the third party and an API where there's just an automatic call response that everyone knows and everyone can implement and build off of. That is really uh, interesting. Uh, please go and, and talk about the, the the disadvantage of the API. But but you've also mentioned sort of uh, Plaid, of course, and 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 uh, what a lot of people uh, don't know is is what companies like Plaid are doing in that process, even though they may not necessarily see them. Yeah, sure. So the disadvantage of an API is that um, whenever you build the API, you're making a decision on what data is in the API and what data is out of the API. And maybe we can talk a little bit later when we talk about um, you know, the more formal regulatory open banking, what impact that can have on consumers when you leave something out of the API or out of the regulation. But just to go to your other question, what role does Plaid have? Um, so right now in the U.S., one in four uh, consumer bank accounts have connected to a fintech, fintech app via Plaid. That's a lot. I mean, that's a, <laughs> that a is real scale. <laughs> uh, that, that's real open banking at scale um, to have 25% of U.S. accounts connected through one provider. And what, that, what does Plaid do? There are 14,000 financial services and, uh, uh, companies in the U.S. For a developer, if you're you know, out there building your consumer-facing app and you want to get data from consumers who bank at 14,000 different locations, you know, everything from Bank of America down to a small single branch credit union somewhere, um, you do not want to spend a lot of time building connections into those 14,000 
institutions. Um, it's not your core business. Your core business is that consumer-facing product. And so what Plaid does is basically handle all of that for you and also handle the consumer permissioning. So we build integrations into more than 14,000 U.S. financial institutions. We maintain those connections um, and we handle the consumer permissioning of their data so that the consumer knows they're engaging with Plaid, knows they are saying, I would like to share this data from this bank account with this third party for this purpose and has full control over that data flow from start to finish and has a consistent experience because Plaid is taking responsibility across all of those financial institutions and all of those apps. It's 3,000 apps that use Plaid uh, to provide that service for them, um, again, across more than 14,000 financial institutions and all of their customer base. So let me just sort of summarize then where we are. So on the one hand, uh, you know, it's it's very difficult for consumers to either permission the use of their data or to actually even, frankly, onboard completely the different apps that they'd like to use, in part because their data or their information may be stored in different kinds of places, right? And so it's a little bit clunky. So uh, one of the challenges is because the interface has been through the internet, and so if web pages change, the, this, the process of information sharing becomes much more difficult. So instead, there's this leveraging of, of APIs as an alternative. And uh, these APIs, I assume, are, are more distributed in nature. So, um, uh, uh, or, or is it more centralized? Are, are the APIs um, on the side of the financial institution, or are they located uh, centrally? So both, actually. So uh, it's best to think about Plaid as almost like a uh, the kind of adapter you use when you need to travel overseas and you need to plug your computer into a um, French outlet and your plug and the outlet don't match. Um, we build the plug on one side, an API that the developer can plug into, and always get the same consistent data in a consistent format from Plaid, regardless of what financial institution is on the other side of Plaid. And then different banks also are building their own APIs, their own outlets, and Plaid is building different prongs to connect into each of those bank outlets. So the idea is no matter where you bank as a consumer, you can have the confidence that your data is going to be conveyed to an app in the same format with the same privacy and security protections no matter what, because it's traveling through Plaid's pipes. And that's really interesting. So on the one hand, you have the ability of the banks to customize things, but at the same time, you have this kind of standardization role that's being played by, by Plaid. Right. And so no developer has to then figure out how to build sort of a bespoke interaction with every single bank they want to make their product available to. They just are able to plug into a single Plaid API and know that it will work for 330 American consumers no matter where they choose to have their financial services handled. And so the, the, the use value is obviously, uh, when coming back to those developers, uh, that, that they can think about their, their core business as opposed to sort of this back-end um, plumbing, if one will, uh, uh, for that. Right, service. and there's a, there's a huge value for banks also. I mean, imagine you are a you know, mid-sized community bank. Um, you probably don't have... Uh, a lot of money to spend on updating your core services so that you, the bank, can connect to all of these fintech apps. Um, 
a larger bank, you know, one of the big five, may have the money that they can direct to those kinds of things. That means that you're looking at a possible future where you're at a competitive disadvantage because your customers can't use Venmo, can't use Robinhood, um, unless they switch to a larger bank because those banks have the money to spend to build those connections with the apps. With Plaid in there, really, it doesn't matter where the consumer is, has their primary accounts. They can use the same set of fintech services uh, regardless of where they are, and you don't create that digital divide between big banks and small banks. And small banks can compete on the things they want to compete on, right? That direct consumer-customer relationship, high-touch, um, high-quality, and the big banks can compete on the stuff they want to compete on, you know, branch ubiquity, lots of ATMs, um, a wide array of vertical services. But the consumer has the same choices of third parties no matter where they go. So what then are the kind of regulatory issues? So I guess we'll, we'll move now to the sort of second category of open banking. I mean, you've talked about Europe. Um, there's this PSD2 uh, regulation that, 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 that came out uh, relatively recently. But when you think about the, the regulation of open banking, um, what are the basic uh, parameters? So let me start with Europe uh, and circle back a little bit to what I said earlier about one of the downsides with APIs. So in the UK, um, the UK government said to the nine largest banks, um, we think there isn't enough competition in the banking market. We're going to open up uh, the market to third-party competitors by saying, you, the nine banks, have to build a consistent API and you have to let any third party who is certified by the government connect to that API and get consumer data and ingest it uh, into whatever service they want, with the consumer's permission, of course. Um, The downside of that was it only applied to payments accounts. So that means that if you're, let's say you're a a UK bank customer and you've got a savings account, an investment account, pension account, and a checking account, only your checking account is on that API. So if you want to look at all of your data, let's say you use a personal financial management tool and you want to see how are your investments doing, how's your pension doing, how are your savings doing, and by the way, what am I spending every month, only the spending information is available over the API, right? And so that creates this real sort of divide that the consumer doesn't think is a real divide. Consumers don't think about their checking account as being a different part of their financial life from their savings account. And it cuts off synergies in terms of what you can do with your information. Exactly. And so the downside of some of that top-down is you may create a division that doesn't actually reflect how the consumer wants to use their information and wants to use their money to improve their own management of their finances. Um, It did solve a couple of other problems, though, right? The regulation in the UK says, banks, you don't have the choice about letting third parties in. Once they get certified by the government, you don't have the right to say yes or no to whether they engage with your customers. It's the consumer's choice. That's a really important development. Um, It's one where we don't have that clear and that strong of a right in the U.S. established for the consumer to really have that choice as to who they want to do business with and who they want to share their data with. Um, It also addressed some things that are real open questions in the U.S., like liability. 
if something goes wrong as the consumer's data moves from the bank to uh, a third party like Plaid and then maybe on to another third party uh, like Robinhood, who is liable when something goes wrong? In the UK, they've established that liability follows the data. So whoever is holding the data and has something go, go wrong, they need to pay the consumer back for whatever harm they caused. In the U.S., we don't have that kind of uh, liability regime in place. Can I get like a little bit nerdy here and, and yeah, dive please. into Reg E? Or is that we gonna, never? Okay, so we, we never get nerdy on this show ever. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Regulation E is is one of the most important sort of money electronic movement regs in the U.S. and I'm going to be very paraphrasing, which I am uh, no, loath to do with a with a law professor on. I feel like I'm about to get uh, a little bit of Socratic method here uh, by doing it. But basically, um, if a consumer shares their logon credentials with a third party and money gets moved without the consumer's authorization, the bank is liable for paying the consumer back, even if someone else was the cause of the problem. That's the current structure of Reg E, and you can see how that's not a great match to an open banking world where um, if the bank doesn't have a choice as to who the consumer is providing account information to, they can feel like, well, why should we be liable for a harm caused by someone else? Um, and that's the kind of thing that probably needs to be looked at and updated and modernized to reflect the way in which consumers are sharing their data right now as opposed to you know, how things happen when Reggie was first contemplated. I think that we may end with a, a thought about the role of data and, and intermediaries when it comes to customer data. Um, it, it would appear to me that there are uh, opportunities for uh, sort of uh, economies of scale, right? Like, you know, the more APIs and, and the more interconnectivity between those APIs, like the more the value is uh, going to be generated through Plaid and, and, and other companies in this space. And so, so what would you perceive then to be the kinds of uh, expectations of, of firms who are seeking to play this role? I mean, I, I think you've just sort of mentioned that the question of liability, I mean, ultimately, uh, in order to, I guess, get this new ecosystem up and running and to get the buy-in from the banks, they have to feel at least that they're not exposed to liability for things that aren't their fault. But then um, what do you see as some of the key uh, expectations uh, that folks should have for companies who are seeking to ultimately become these new custodians of customer data? So I, I think there's a couple of key ones, right? One is the consumer should have the confidence that their data is not being sold, that they are not being turned into the product. Um, I think there's been too much of that in consumer data, not in financial data, but sort of elsewhere in uh, the world. And I think consumers are reacting really strongly to it now. We don't want to be the product. We want to know what's happening to our data and we want to be in control. And by, by, by product, you're saying like, like no one's taking your data, packaging it up, selling it to somebody else. That's right. Yeah. And the amazing thing about what's happening in um the consumer financial data world is I think there's an opportunity to really set a different consumer expectation and one that really is aligned to the consumer's best interest, which is telling the consumer and really honoring the consumer's wishes 
uh, here of you are going to share this data with this company for this purpose. Full stop, right? Nothing outside of that expectation is going to happen to your data. You are not going to, you know, suddenly be marketed to um, because some algorithm somewhere has uh, from a company that you've never heard of and never said yes to, right? Like that is not going to happen. It's a pure exchange of your information in order for a service that depends on that information. That That's one of the key expectations. I think the other expectation that you need to meet is that the consumer really does have controls over what happens. And not just controls, meaning, you know, don't sell, don't turn me into a product, but also when I want to turn something off, I've said yes to this app, I've changed my mind, I don't want to use it anymore. Is that an easy thing to do? Is it as easy to turn off your data sharing as it was to turn it on? I think clearly the expectation needs to be if you're making it easy for the consumer to share, you need to make it equally easy for the consumer not to share. Um, And then really the third one is that the consumer's choices need to be maximized and honored. You don't get to sort of paternalistically say, well, you know, this is a competitor to me. I don't think you should be doing business with them. I don't want you to share data. Um, Or um, you don't get to share this type of data because it's something that I don't, I'm not comfortable with you sharing, even if you are comfortable sharing that data. I think those are the three things that you need to build on as sort of baseline assumptions when you're building with the consumer's core interest as your North Star. John, thanks so much. Chris, it's been a pleasure. Open banking is grappling with changes germane to many other areas of financial technology, including the ubiquitous question of how to enable more bespoke solutions in ways in which there is interoperability between financial services, old and new. Now, open banking holds the hope of a host of potential new advantages and use cases for financial technology for consumers. But cybersecurity may be determined by the weakest link in any connected system, even in open banking, and new rules may have to be laid out in ways that are thoughtful enough to ensure compliance with high standards, the protection of customer data, and robust resilience mechanisms within the system. Now, Plaid is taking center stage in this conversation and will be returning to open banking in the future and covering other issues tied to fair lending, big data, and market power in the industry. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C H R I S B R U M M E R D R. We'd love to hear from you. FinTech Beat is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.